Welcome to Living Better London with me, Natalie Small. This podcast will be your weekly guide to help you navigate the stress of busy city life while taking small steps towards nurturing the mind, body and soul. Hello everyone. Um, In keeping with the theme of this episode, I thought I would be as authentic as possible, excuse me, um, just moved into the new flat, so as this episode is all about my basic principle number one, which is to seek out and nurture authentic moments of joy, I thought it'd be a nice touch if I just sort of bumble around the flat, <laughs> being as authentic as possible, and make this a little bit less scripted, so there'll be no sort of plan of what I really need to talk about in detail. So that'll be interesting. See how that goes. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, so just to start, anyone who's been following my progress or been listening to the podcast is probably aware of how um, Living Better London began my sort of struggles when I've moved to London previously and um, the flat that I was in prior to this new one which is where I am at the moment Um, so you'll be pleased to know that the new location we're in (laughs) it's very quiet it's very peaceful Um, we live on a crescent in Finsbury Park and every road sort of around us is gated so you don't get that sort of high traffic um, or sirens or street lights or anything that we had in the old place which is amazing Um, So yeah, Living Better London is uh, very pleased with itself or herself. I can't decide if Living Better London is me or Living Better London is an entity of its own. But we'll figure that out another day. Anyway, so um, what I thought I would do in the next few weeks is try and structure the uh, podcast episodes around each principle and how they began. So... Obviously, you guys hear me talk quite a bit about basic principle number one, which, as I've said, is to seek out and nurture authentic moments of joy. But I did realise that that to me means so much. I know exactly what I'm referring to, but it's very hard to try and um, communicate something that you've created in your own mind, if that makes sense. So... um, I thought today I could just go through a little bit about the history of basic principle number one and what it really entails. So just to start with, it's probably the best, hmm, what's the best way to start with this? You know what, I'm going to tell you about my childhood. Let's go all the way back. Um, Yeah, so growing up, I lived a very, um, what's the word, unconventional childhood. So when I was about 10 years old, my parents decided to um, homeschool me and my siblings. It was mainly because they didn't like um, the way conventional education sort of dictated a child's week. Um, We we always had issues coming home with mountains of homework or, you know, school bullies. And my parents just didn't feel like it was the most... um, beneficial way to raise a child and they'd heard about 
home education through friends. So they gave it a go and started home tutoring us. Now, the really interesting thing about that was we weren't part of a... Um, we didn't really have a structure. So I think it, that's beautiful. We do... We, a few the, through the years have had the odd bit of feedback on that or questioning like... Well, my number one most hated question is, oh, you were home educated, so um, how are your social skills? I always think that that's the, the rudest question you could possibly ask anyone on the planet. But anyway, yeah, it was very unconventional. People didn't really know what to do with us. People didn't really know what to say to us. Um, but what it gave me is a background of education, which allowed me to entirely create my own passions, if that makes sense. So every interest that I had, it was found by me. And I took this kind of... I suppose I my education evolved into genuine, authentic interests rather than following some kind of set um, structure, which was an amazing and beautiful childhood, I have to say. I, I feel very blessed to have the freedoms that we had um, because, like I said, I've, I've become interested in things that I organically um, discovered. So that sort of, um, that came about for me or that manifested for me in an interest in gardening when I was about um, 11 years old, I think. I grew up in a village in Hertfordshire, as I've mentioned on the blog before, and I think I've mentioned it on here before. Um, and there was a lot of green spaces. We had this beautiful big garden that nobody really knew what to do with or had any interest in. And I ended up getting very interested in it. Um, so I took on the space when I was really young, probably like I said, 11-ish. Um, and yeah, it became a project. And obviously at first my design skills or my um, planting skills left uh, room for improvement. But as the years went on, I developed quite a great um, skill set because I was, like I said, it was part of my education and I gave it a lot of my focus um, because it was something I enjoyed doing. So I've probably been gardening for about two years, I think, when I decided to um, take on a new project, which is kind of along the same lines. Excuse me, I'm just going to have a drink. Yeah, so imagine that. I've been doing my gardening for two years. I've fallen in love with it. Passionate about nature. And my mum tells me about this place called Celtic Harmony Camp, which was a historical education centre near where I grew up. And um, my garden wasn't big enough for me anymore at this point. <laughs> so I decided to approach them and see if they would let me volunteer with them um, as part of my education. And they loved the concept of what my family were doing, what I was doing. So they agreed and they gave me their herb garden to take over and tend to. And every weekend I'd go spend my time with them. And it was, again, lovely, beautiful, sort of peaceful, tranquil way to uh, grow up and educate myself. Um, so I spent time with them. And like I said, I had the herb patch and I sort of um, forayed into a little bit of the... Uh, the history of the Celts and things like that. This is such a funny story to tell. I feel like such a bizarre person, but I love it. 
Um, yeah, so like I said, I spent a few years with them and I'd been doing the summer season, so I'd support with um, sort of their busiest periods. And then it got to winter one year and they expressed the, um, or I expressed an interest in something else that they were doing aside from the historical education and aside from the gardening that I've been providing for them. So basically they had conservation projects that they did to maintain the site in the um, winters. And when I first joined them, I was probably a little bit too young to um, sort of take part in that uh, side of things. But as I'd got a little bit older, they offered me the opportunity to join them one winter. And instead of just being interested in gardening and kind of what you can get out of the land, I developed an interest in conservation because it was along the same lines, but it was about giving back, if that makes sense. So trying to um, preserve or restore something rather than, I don't know, get some cut flowers and grow some fruit and vegetables that I would then eat, you know. So it was it was similar interest, but um, I'd say the other side of the coin for me. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. Again, I spent another couple of years helping them out with that. Um, and yeah, I developed this incredible interest in nature in general. So at that point, I think I was probably, yeah, I would have been about 14 and I was still home educated, had a few other interests, like as a lot of you know, I sing. So music really, um, began for me around about that time, but the probably the most beneficial thing that happened to me that year when I was 14 was I discovered a course for young adults at college. Um, it was a college called Capel Manor and they are an agricultural college. So I've explained to you guys, you know, I was super interested in my gardening. I was getting interested in conservation. And basically these guys had like an introductory course to a few subjects. So it was animal care, countryside management and horticulture. So to me that sounded perfect but it was also my first sort of step towards a more conventional education again. You know, I'd had these beautiful few years of swanning around in nature and doing the odd singing competition. And other than like seeing an education officer once a year, I was free to sort of learn whatever I wanted with zero structure. So anyway, I decided to go for a meeting at Capel Manor and find out more about this course. And ordinarily they didn't have home educated kids it was more about um providing an alternative education for teenagers that weren't necessarily getting so well or getting on so well in school um but they'd had a, a home educated child previously so they you know they gave me a a place on the course which I was very grateful for and i distinctly remember turning up on the first day and I got into the foyer and I was wearing this grey hoodie that had said gap across the front of it that I got in a charity shop because I knew I was going to be getting really messy. Um, it had an ink stain on the shoulder or elbow or something from where I'd just been. It's, it was like my um, tatty work clothes, I guess. 
And uh, the lovely people at Celtic Harmony Camp had bought me a pair of steel toe-capped boots as well, which is really kind of them. And I was wearing those. And I had my hair scraped back into a pony because obviously I knew I was going to be knee-deep in mud for like two years. Um, And I remember getting there and seeing my peers for the first time, fellow students. And I was like, oh no, oh my God, I've made such a big mistake. Because I was thinking I would be face-to-face with a group of people that had the same interests as me, the same passions as me. And for the most, I mean, excluding some exceptions, for the most part, what I was faced with was this bunch of teenagers that maybe weren't doing so well in school and weren't interested in plants at all, but they've been given another chance. Um, They were more interested in things like the latest phone, stylish haircut, you know, the right clothes, and their eye turn up like an alien. Um, (laughs) No one really knew what to um, make of me. So yeah, integrating back into uh, conventional or semi-conventional education wasn't a particularly easy um, thing for me to do. And I think it took some adjustment for me um, to find a way for people to understand my personality I guess and I did definitely find that over the years I had to sort of filter my authenticity if that makes sense now it's not necessarily that I was forced to I I am a person in my own right (laughs) and I have an identity as you can all bloody tell from this uh, podcast I've got personality of my own But at that age, after spending so much time outside of education, being with people in the same age range as me was a bit terrifying at first because I didn't know what the latest phone was. You know, I didn't know what music everybody was listening to. I didn't understand popular culture in any way because I'd had this... I wouldn't even say sheltered childhood, but totally organic childhood. Um, so yeah, I, I was very thrown sort of trying to fit in and for a while I didn't. Um, but definitely as the months went on, I found myself, despite my personality and my interests, having to kind of conform more to what my... I guess you could call them friends at this point, what my friends were interested in. Because it was it's very hard to integrate, you know? Spending most days with a bunch of people who you can't identify with or who um, have little side glances or um, whispers in each other's ear when you speak can be a bit intimidating for a teenager. So for the first time ever, I found myself kind of changing to fit the mould a little bit and obviously the longer I was spending time with these people the longer I was becoming or being fake interested if that makes sense in the things that they were passionate about. Now I actually ended up spending five years at this college um, various qualifications from 
gardening, animal care, tree surgery, environmental studies. But what I found is with every year that went by and with every new group of people that I met, I became less and less like me. My grades dropped. I stopped being, I was still interested in what I was doing, but I stopped being quite so, um, what's the word? Enthusiastic about it, I guess. I, I kind of developed like an air of cool indifference to everything I was learning um, in order to fit in more with the people around me. Now, after college, I then moved into a career as a tree surgeon with my um, previous partner. And one winter, well, we'd been running our business for about a year. And one winter, it had, um, the weather had changed significantly. We dropped off a lot of work. Um, No one was really spending money on their gardens. So it seemed like sensible, um, like a sensible idea. Ow, sorry, I've given myself a dead leg. (laughs) I told you this is authentic. Yeah, anyway. So I decided to take on some part-time work at a coffee shop in my hometown just to make sure money was still coming in. We were running our business in Harrow at this point and my hometown was in Hartford. So I think that kind of gave me a lot of separation between myself and my partner. And long story short, without going into too much detail, we ended up um, separating. So at this point, all the ties that I had to my passion, my interests were kind of torn because I wasn't gardening anymore. I wasn't doing tree surgery. I wasn't working outdoors. I was then, I think at that point I was a supervisor and I was full-time in this coffee shop. And I think working in anything like hospitality or customer facing roles they can be quite exhausting and I found myself then also not spending much time um making music anymore or singing all of my passions were kind of stripped from me in order to um be able to work or bring money in and again I'm meeting new people I'm finding out more about their lives I guess I've at this point I kind of became quite adept at being a chameleon if that makes sense like finding a way to um fit in amongst the people that are around me in order to be liked because I guess everybody wants to be liked don't they that's not a weird thing um especially when you're so young I think I was still about 18 or 19 at this point anyway I'd started my new path in this coffee shop and after about four years I had grown through every rank of the company um, on a store level. So I was now store manager. And all of a sudden, Hartford and the life I was in wasn't enough for me anymore. So I decided to um, move into London retail. And I got a job as a department supervisor at Debenhams in Westfield. And that's actually where I met Afro. So to tie in a little bit about his story on one of his podcasts about us and how we met... I was going to be his supervisor on his department and I ended up being put on the cosmetics department instead. Now, this is where things get really hilarious because where I was homeschooled and um, my spending a lot of time with my brothers and my dad, things like that, 
I'd never really developed that unspoken rule that most women are or should be interested in makeup or cosmetics. I didn't wear it, I didn't know a thing about it, I wasn't interested at all. So once again, taking another step away from authenticity and being such a, um, what's the word? Such a professional chameleon at this point, I guess, I became someone new again. And I got myself up to speed on makeup and skincare and fragrances and everything feminine, bearing in mind I've just explained to you my past and where I came from and my vocational background. It really is like chalk and cheese. So <laughs> you could just see the amount of effort that was put into becoming a new person again. And um, yeah, I spent about a year on that department until I was then approached by a beauty brand. And they offered me a role as a supervisor. And that's coming up to a roundabout now and where I am in my career. So I was with this brand and over the years I started to notice more of a, uh, I guess, a trend or a subculture in the beauty industry that I'd never really noticed before. And what that was is that over the few years that I've been working in the beauty world, I've noticed that there is this, um, there's a big interest in popular culture, you know? So obviously with beauty, you do tend to get the influencers and the influencers can often be celebrity influencers. You can kind of see a little bit the tie to popular culture um, there's a lot of focus on social media. That's a lot of the ways that we um, sort of promote our products. But how that seems to manifest in a beauty customer or a beauty, um, I suppose, employee in general is something that I never really could uh, get my head around or even pretend to enjoy. <laughs> this must have been the bar for me. Um, and that was, and still is, it's hard to explain. How can I put it in a way? Right, so if you've got a beauty department and you've got all these people that are following specific celebrity influencers or um, popular culture, it seems to equate to a bunch of people that are aspiring to achieve a certain lifestyle that doesn't belong to them, if that makes sense. So I guess it's probably um, a lot to do with consumerism, uh, capitalism. I'm aware I work in a sales role, so that's how it works. Um, but for the first time ever, when I was sitting on these lunch breaks with my colleagues, listening to stories of this or that rapper who's dating this or that, Kardashian you know like um, various different um, influences that might be wearing a certain style of clothing that my friends couldn't really understand or like and like I never really understood that culture I couldn't get why I would want to gain a lifestyle that wasn't mine or like I just guess I'm very disinterested in popular culture or maybe this was just the tipping point for me because I've 
spent, as I said, a really long amount of time in my life sort of conforming to the interests of other people when I've had such stark differences in um, what I enjoy. So yeah, like I said, this was the point where I felt myself sort of rebelling, I guess, against what is popular or what is the norm. So I think I spoke about that very, very briefly in my first episode when I was saying about um, my friends on social media or uh, the kind of culture that comes with social media about um, aspiring to be someone we're not. And that's when I thought I'd make my Instagram account um, and create that basic principle number one, which was the seeking out and nurturing authentic moments of joy. To me, what that means is going against the grain. You know, like an authentic moment of joy is that little hobby or that little habit or that little passion that you've always had that you um, conceal for the sake of other people. I, I really don't think I'm the only person that does that. Like I've spoken to a lot of friends who talk about activities they were once interested in that they're not so much anymore. But the authentic moments of joy can also mean um, making time for things, whether they're conventional or not. You know, inviting something into your life that um, provides you with complete and utter happiness. And I think that we all could do with inviting a little bit more happiness into our lives and it's not necessarily something that's particularly easy to do. And I think self-care, self-love um, is really what we're talking about here. So now I've described to you exactly what that principle means to me and where it came from. Um, I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about how to create those moments of joy. Because for me, when I started to realise that I'd fallen a little bit, well, not a little bit, when I realised I'd fallen very far away from who I am and what my interests are, uh, I decided to dig out this journal that I'd had in my shelves for a good few years. Now, this book is very special to me and on its front page I have scrawled in various different um, handwriting. Some really important, I'm just going to grab it actually, if I can actually find it, because obviously we've just moved into this flat. Where are you, journal? Bear with before I explain this, because I kind of want to read some out to you. There we go, we found it. Right, yeah, so scribbled into this book is every sight, sound, touch, smell, activity <laughs> that gives me joy, that makes me happy. Um, and I created this book, if, if people who are following my progress have probably read the blog post about this, but I created this book probably about five or six years ago. And what it was, was that I'd been in this relationship for a little while and my partner, sorry, I'm reading the book at the moment. Um, 
my then partner decided to um, develop a, re a relationship with one of my friends. Um, it's a really strange thing to talk about now, particularly in a podcast, because I find it, um, I marvel at the fact it doesn't mean anything to me anymore. <laughs> it's like not a problem, if that makes sense. But at the time, it, it felt absolutely devastating because not only had I um, lost this boyfriend, we'd actually already split up, by the way, when he um, went on with one of my friends, but I'd lost this boyfriend and I'd met him just after I'd exited that um, engagement. So I guess it was a really vulnerable time for me. My life had changed so drastically, as you've been able to tell throughout this episode. Um, and it, I really hit the floor when that happened. I really did, because for the first time in my life, or in my adult life, I'd... How can I describe it? I don't want to sound too awful, but I kind of experienced a betrayal for the first time you know like um this friend of mine was part of a group of us and when what happened happened she moved to cyprus and he followed her so i didn't lose just my boyfriend i lost my friend it completely disjointed our friend group and i was on my own and then all of a sudden i couldn't hide from um pain i couldn't hide from the drastic changes that had gone in in my life and I all of a sudden for the first time had to start um, looking my self in the eye I guess um, and I definitely wallowed for a while like anybody would that had been um, sort of troubled had <laughs> their heart broken um, but maybe after a good three months or so of coming home, getting straight in bed, not wanting to eat, you know, all that classic heartbreak stuff. I think I'd finished work one day and I was like, no, I don't want to feel like this anymore. I have to do something about this. So I went out and I, I think it was on, what did I do that day? I think I went out for an old fashioned, which is my favourite drink, was my favourite drink because, you know, I don't drink anymore. Um, yeah, I went out for an old fashioned and I went, I think, buy some books in foils and I got home and I felt really good for the first time in ages. And that's when I came with, came up with this idea for the book. And I got in bed that evening, 10 o'clock at night, rather than my standard as soon as I finished work um, before that. Yeah, I got in bed and I picked up my, this notebook that I found next to me. And I wrote down all the things that made me happy. And I wasn't referring to them as authentic moments of joy at this point, but I started to document everything that I loved. So to read some things out, you've got um, my dog, Patsy. She is my everything. She's like 17 years old at this point, but I love her to pieces. Um, olives, always been a fan of an olive. Everyone who knows me that knows that. <laughs> Um, artichokes, it seems to be a food theme here, it's not all food, I promise, um, vinyl, the film Dirty Dancing, like, every single thing I could possibly think of, willow trees, um, being alone, I know that sounds really strange, Ernest Hemingway, cups of tea, literally everything I could possibly think of at that point that made me happy, I wrote down in this book, 
And the promise that I made to myself is that as long as I felt this sad or this bad or down, every single day I could introduce one of the things from my list into my life. So the rule also had to be that it couldn't be anything that was detrimental to my physical or mental health. So, you know, I love chocolate. I love old fashioned, as I said, I'm not going to be eating Lindor um, on a bench drinking whiskey. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That, that doesn't really add up very well. But basically, it had to be things that provided me with happiness, but weren't going to be um, damaging to me in another way. So the rule was that I could also introduce as many of those things as I liked into my life. And I found that day by day, bit by bit, my feelings and my problems began to dissipate because I was focusing on myself. And that to me was really what self or still really what self-care is all about. Um, so I dug out this book again because, as I said to you in my first episode, I'd had a really tough time last year. I was at that point again in time where I was feeling about as low as the situation when I'd created this book. So I remembered that it existed and I pulled it out and I found myself actually being able to add to it as well for the first time um, in a really long time. And yeah, sorry, this is, I'm getting distracted because I've just seen my neighbours um, appearing out the front and I'm a bit nosy about everyone on this street because I've never met any of them before. <laughs> yeah, so like I said, I've described to you what the origin of the basic principle number one is. But this piece that I'm talking about here... Um, is my way of advising you on how to start that path of um, finding your authentic moments of joy. You know, I think that anybody listening to this could definitely um, benefit from the liberation that you feel when you start to um, take back control of your own happiness. Because you can probably tell as I've got through this episode that all of the things that were happening in my life, all of the changes and the um, amendments or new roles or relationship breakdowns, whatever they are, those were things that were providing me with so much pain or so much um, upheaval, but that I have no control over them. You know, like... The only thing that I can control are my, or the only things that I control are my responses to what is happening around me. And I've mentioned that before in, the, I think, the first episode too. Um, and creating activities like this list, um, it gave, it gives me back control. It gave me control. Um, and it's also opened up a conversation for me, particularly um with this episode and with the basic principle number one that I'm shouting from the rooftops because the more I talk about it, the better reception I seem to get from the people around me. And I really want to use this episode to inspire people to never feel as though they have to be, think or feel a certain way. 
Your life belongs entirely to you. It can be written in any way you want it to. You know, obviously I'm not um, suggesting that anyone uh, partake in anything that could cause harm to anybody else. But the aim of the game here um, in this conversation, in this episode, is to really empower and um, inspire anybody who's listening to start their own path. Now, I know it's been a bit of a ramp because, like I said, I decided to go a bit freestyle today. Um, But I really do feel that what I've said is very, um, I'm very, very passionate about it. And that's really what I mean when I talk about um, the basic principle number one, uh, to seek out and nurture authentic moments of joy. Now, obviously, you guys know that I'm very active on social media. And if you do feel that you've listened to this and you've got past all my ramblings and you've got to my point, you understand what I'm trying to say. um, Try giving these basic principles a go. Try giving this basic principle number one a go, particularly because I think it's the most important. I really do. This is about the mind and this is about our happiness levels. So go out, grab yourself a notebook if you've not already got one. And try that activity. Try listing all of these things that you know you love and um, adopt some of them in your life. Try and find a way to fit them in amongst everything else. Because the, you know, the the pace itself is never going to change. London is never going to change. But how you use London and how you um, manage your own happiness can. And that's what this principle is about. Anyway, I should probably stop rambling now. (laughs) Thank you for listening. So now we've finished this episode. If you would like to discover more about Living Better London or the basic principles, then please visit my website at www.livingbetterlondon.com or alternatively, you can find us on Instagram or Facebook. So if you do decide to adopt any of the basic principles of Living Better London, I would love to be able to see your progress. So if you can post your content on social media using the hashtag livingbetterlondon, I can find you guys and give you a little bit of love.